welcome to pop culture cake and uh okay see you and i uh, <laughs> we're here today to talk about kim's convenience a wonderful if short-lived tv series about a an adorable korean family i'm joined here today by matt i'm matt and i am also a an adorable korean family i'm also <laughs> joined by amalia <laughs> hello <laughs> We're also joined by Dane. Hi, yes. I got nothing else to add to that. And and Forrest, last but not least. <laughs> hey guys. So guys, I I mean I think I can think I can just start off briefly. Um I mean I think the consensus is, and we could even kind of reverse the normal order of things. The consensus is that sh- this show is great. And we could probably give it yeah. nine out of eleven max maxes as a as a collective unit i think i don't think there's a lot of there'll be a lot of dissension here forrest did make a weird face but no one cares i just um, i don't understand the scale we oh but that's the point but i love scale. it i love no okay but that's a pretty good that's a pretty good scale. scale nobody I understands give it the scale. 11 bowls of datamyeon out of 10 that's fine too but see, if maxes are units of joy i would say this show is 10 out of 10 maxes because i mean yeah, it's but- just such a joyous show but have you ever had jajangmyeon? And it's Korean, so relevant. <laughs> I I don't it's think delicious. I have. It's in Japan. It's it's like black. But bean he's not Japanese. <laughs> Look, you don't 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 make this problematic immediately. Yeah, we're gonna get into international <laughs> relationships immediately. Japan invade Korea. Hey Matt, as someone who introduced me to the to the show and you know it was kind of my my entry point and someone who i watched a lot of it with I'm, I'm really interested in hearing what your what your thoughts are on the show as a whole and you know kind of more solemnly it, it's and it's early end let's see i mean so like who i think i would say that this show is a vehicle for intense joy for me um i think it's interesting to see maybe not things that i have dealt with but things that i'm sure my mother dealt with sort of on mainstream tv and i think that it's it was fun listening to mr kim throughout the whole series because in a few different ways he reminds me of my late grandfather so that kind of hits different now and i don't know it was definitely a show that i would never hesitate to pass along as as amalia well knows um, <laughs> as i got her well and truly addicted to it um yeah i think it ending is unfortunate because it feels kind of abrupt but we haven't seen that last season yet so on on one hand it's kind of a who knows situation i think there are also questions about like whether or not taking sort of representation like representation from sort of a, a racial ethnic standpoint and just like plugging it into the great american sitcom like how much and what kind of work that does but i think like as a pastime i think it was a wonderful series and it was very like digestible right because it was shorter episodes you could sit down and like i think we literally did one weekend just sit down and binge the entire thing i think that was like amalia and my mm-hmm. second run through was we just sat there we're like this is happening like mm-hmm. yeah uh, so i love it dearly and I, I felt like it was a real good time but i'm curious amalia is the other person i have introduced this to here mm-hmm. how did you feel about the experience well, I really enjoyed Kim's Convenience, obviously. The first time I watched it, there were a lot of moments of tension that I picked up on, and I thought that the acting and script writing was really good, and it was interesting because it was clearly adapted from a play, 
you can see it whenever they're exiting or entering the store. It's like the stage, sort of. So, you know, as a kid who came from a tech theater background and culturally interested in Korea and Japan, like, I, I loved it. And there were some moments that hit different when I became more familiar with Korean culture and some of the jokes that you let me in on. And so the subsequent rewatches, like, I picked up on more small details every time. So I really, really enjoyed it a lot. And yeah, I don't know. I thought it was great. It's wholesome and for the most part, family friendly. There's more swearing in the first season than later, but I don't know. My parents became addicted to it as well, actually, secondhand. So they really liked it and sent Matt an OKCU keychain for Christmas. So <laughs> from, from me, it gets 11 bowls of Dottomyeon and my mom doesn't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> Dane, what about you? What did you think of the show? Yeah, and also... So I'm- Oh. And also, and also, give us a, a little like because I think was this something that you had you were keyed into before, or was it just as a function of the podcast? Entirely as a function of the podcast. I think Netflix doesn't know what to recommend me anymore. I've watched a bunch of different genres. I think this might be the first sitcom I've ever watched on Netflix, actually. So that might have really messed up my algorithm. I do. I I think it's so interesting. Like, I so I'm I'm halfway through the second season. I've been I watched like season one all this weekend and beginning through it, and I'm I'm looking forward to finishing it. But I find it so interesting that we all keep saying that it uh you know had a short run, but five seasons is pretty good by today's standards. I mean, I bet if you look at the population of shows that make it past like one or two seasons, I mean, I feel like that's so, especially like with the Netflix model where I don't know if a lot of people know this, but like. They get like uh, very little money for the first like three seasons of a show. The the like the people in it, and then like if they reach the fourth season, then Netflix pays them a lot more. So it becomes very expensive for Netflix to do shows after the fourth season and such. So I think five seasons is pretty good. I have some other things I want to talk about, but at this initial point, just going over my thoughts, I think Amalia is completely correct. It's a uh, very wholesome content. Brings a smile to my play, uh, face. But there are, I will say, some of some still uh, some of Shannon's interactions are very, very hard to watch. Like I have to pause from time to time and just kind of like, okay, okay, calm down, calm down. Like it, it's so hard. It's so hard sometimes. Yes, Nicole Power does an amazing job with that. Like, oh yeah, unbearably awkward acting, like on purpose. She's really, really talented because you can feel your whole body cringing. For <laughs> it's sure, really she funny. is. All the yeah. actors are fantastic, and yeah, she. I agree. The way like, that look she gets, like when she's flirting, is like so good. Mm. That's wonderful, Forrest. I, this is a little bit of ba- a little behind the scenes, but we have like obviously we're 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 distance for multiple reasons, mm-hmm. primarily literal distance. But we have like a the, the the utility that we use to record has like a raise hand function, mm-hmm. and we've never I didn't realize I was going to bounce up. And yeah, down you were bouncing, little, like, like, and I was so excited like to see you bounce. Yeah. You're so happy. Like I have something to say. But first, yeah. tell me, tell me, tell me what you thought of the show, kind of from a general point of view. Well, I was going to build off uh, a little bit what we were saying. Where some of the side, one of the things I like about the show is that some of the side characters are they don't you know give them short shrift like you know looking through a list mr chin mr meta pastor nina like they don't really you you know the side characters are as important i won't say at this point because they're side characters but like they really think them through and they're like really good funny contributions and then another thought i had which is kind of 
built on something Dane was saying where, you know, five seasons is pretty good. But I think the reason that it feels so short is that you can kind of just like chew through these episodes. Like, you know, it's a, it's a fun, like other than pausing, maybe when Shannon says something you can, it's like a fun kind of, I don't want to say easy watching because easy kind of implies that it's dumb. And I don't think that's the case. But it's like something that you can kind of just like open your heart to and watch through. And it feels in some ways like a 90s sitcom, which all have like a bazillion episodes. So I think that's another reason why it feels a little bit short. But yeah, I would, you know, I think they could just keep creating this forever other than obviously like the realities of the world. So yeah, those are those are my thoughts. Yeah, and on top of that, it's, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty standard sitcom length episodes. And they're only 13 episodes per season. So something like A Modern Family probably gets in the 20 range. Hmm. Um, yeah, standard in the U.S. is 26 episodes per season. So it's yeah. like half a season of television. Mm-hmm. So really what we're getting is like two and a half seasons. Right. And that's I think that's part of why it feels so short. I mean, granted, I've only watched the first two seasons. I kind of fell off after Matt moved away. As it was something that he and I did as like a as like a bonding exercise. But, you know, what What I wanted to talk about, maybe leading away, I guess my general thoughts is, I, I, I said at the top, it, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful show. I would highly recommend it. It brings a lot of Max units to my life. But I wanted to talk about, you know, a couple episodes ago, Matt, you and I had a fairly long conversation about, like, representation in media for people of mixed or minority backgrounds. And, you know, Kim's Convenience is a Canadian show first and foremost and also you know as i don't i don't know if i can point to another western you know korean focused i mean almost entirely right piece of media i'm really curious about what it means to you as someone with korean with a korean background to be able to watch and experience what is essentially a very untroped Obviously, there are things that are specific to the Korean experience, but it is not like K-pop. You know what I mean? It's not fetishized in the same way that a lot of their Korean media might be in the Western eyesight. So, you know, if you could if you could touch touch on that, you know, I, I think I'd be really interested in hearing it. Yeah, sure. I think so. Here's here's the thing for me. I think that on a really basic level, having this sitcom out there is really important because sort of the fundamental nature of being Asian American, whatever the fuck that means, right? Is that you're not only in a position where the box the government puts you in, right? Like your racial category that you get is fundamentally an like oxymoronic in a certain way and erasive because you're never going to be officially Korean American, right? Like you are always going to officially be Asian American with the opportunity to qualify in certain contexts. And then you build into that the idea that like you're Asian, but like you're always right. So on that level, you are a person from another place, but you're also American. So there's this weird tension between the way that just like that term gets put together where they're sort of like, yes, you're American, multiculturalism, hurrah, but also you're still Asian with a hyphen on it, right? So like from sort of a categoric standpoint, not only is that category really broad and in that way erasive of of people's sort of individual cultural experiences and, and such, it's also very like 
you're here, hooray, but also stay at arm's length, sort of, in the way that it's constructed. And so having something that feels so specifically Korean on TV, I think, was really exciting and, and heartwarming for me, because it's it's a level of validation that, like, you don't get, right? Like, because <laughs> uh, everywhere else you go, it's, it's K-pop and, like... Uh, bulgogi and like kimchi right like that's like and i guess in gaming circles right like starcraft and league of legends right like that's if you're korean that's what you are so it's nice to kind of be a family that owns a convenience store in toronto and has ridiculous friends and like kind of uh weird semi-dysfunctional family experiences so i i think this the show does a really good job of like bringing all of these elements kind of together in a way because it's it is like a normal family sitcom but it's also not like normal because normal is ultimately white and middle class right but it's it's sort of it adds in what being asian american or asian canadian or korean american korean canadian does to uh certain dynamics that that people might describe as familiar normally i don't know i i I think it's an important show it's it's flawed in certain ways certainly but like it's it's an important thing to have out there i guess is the roundabout point (laughs) yeah one thing i really like about it i thought that it was kind of groundbreaking and that i've never seen a western series that had all of the dumb or super problematic flawed characters were played by white actors I don't yes. know if y'all noticed this, but it was all of the, you know, ordinary people who were just trying to live their lives or all of the really exceptional people who were doing really great things were minority characters. And it's one of the few places where you actually see that kind of like the stereotyping and like microaggressions that you see in writing from a Western standpoint against char- characters that are from the anywhere else that kind of like twinge of xenophobia that you get it's like it kind of fires back a little bit at the white community for some of the stereotypes about like white people that are unflattering that are hilarious because they're true (laughs) you know like the the mom whose kid is like destroying the store and she's like you need to apologize to my son for yelling at him and Mr. Kim is just like baffled. Like I just, I really appreciate that it. They did that in a way that was funny and still respectful, but like you can't not notice it. You know, like it's just it's everywhere. <laughs> we don't use the N word. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I didn't say that. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, uh, uh, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's, that's such a good point because, like, I I remember we've talked about that on a few occasions, right? Like all the problem characters like the whole series is just a like a bunch of interpolated brent you remember how like when we when we lived together in the house as as roommates it was like the the sort of catchphrase every once in a while was fucking white people man right like i feel like that's like the show's unspoken mantra on some level yeah Yeah, and i think it's what's so good about it is that it is flawed right i mean that's like any other i use the word regular in air quotes any of the regular sitcom but it's like it is i think a very good balance of recognizing differences in cultures without highlighting them in a in like a like it's not it's not highlighted in a now i'm I'm struggling with the word but it's not highlighted in like a in like a in like a look at this it's korean yeah it's i mean it's like it's not Right. It's it, yeah. it, it influences. It is it is the it is a core. It is part of the core of the show, 
without coming off as like like cyberpunk fucking just like look we did it we're doing it you know is look progress you know it's right it treats it the way it should be treated which is different but just like anything else you know because we are all we are all just people and we should not you know disregard our differences but we also don't need to make them these massive points of departure other than to say you know hey we're here and uh, we'd like to be recognized more we we can pull away from from the the super seriousness unless anybody else wants to to chime in on it um yeah please dane yeah so uh I fucking Side hear note. I hear the fucking notebook paper. Yes. Yeah, yeah, professor over notes. here. He's really <laughs> <Yes>. prepared. <laughs> so, a side note, at work, an old employer or employer, a uh, coworker gave me the nickname Dr. Wikipedia cuz I'd always go to Wikipedia and check things. And Kim's convenience is no 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 uh exception to that. And I found it really interesting. If you go it talks about a critic, I don't I didn't write down their name, but they were talking they were talking about how the the characters had accents. And he raised the concern that, oh, are we are we laughing at these characters? And the actor who played Mr. Kim, I apologize if I'm not pronouncing his name right, but Paul Sun Hyung Lee responded saying that, yeah, some characters have accents, some people have accents. Maybe because that concerns you, that says more about you than you realize. And I think that's such a a, a good point is that they don't try to, you know, glamorize what it is to be Korean Canadian or, or you know, they just they're they're just it feels like they're presenting their story you know this is the story that the show writers wanted to tell and they didn't they just tried to present real characters they weren't you know they weren't making caricatures these were people that you could tell they based on someone they knew in their life they felt very grounded and i just wanted to tie into that I, this reminded me of something that the Parasite director said a while ago, where if Americans could just get past that, you know, one inch tall subtitles, they could enjoy a lot more movies. And I feel like there's this weird stigma, you know, in addition to just the subtitles in, in foreign films, but also that there's like this weird white guilt, maybe that like, oh, these characters have accents. I can't find the show amusing because then I'm laughing at them. And it's like, that's not that's not the point. So that that's the last serious note I wanted to bring up as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point too because you know they're obviously not laughing at they're they're not making fun of somebody's accent and it does say more about someone who would ask that question than it does about someone who has an accent. I agree completely with Mr. Kim in this case. So yeah, I think. I think that's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. And to that end about subtitles, I have heard that so many times. I am a total Korean drama addict as well as being really into Kim's Convenience. So all the moments about like Korean dramas like that, that the, where they had like some inside jokes about it that were like just for people who were, were in the know, <laughs> I have recommended them to other friends of mine who are you know, not Korean and they won't watch them. And the reason I always hear is because they won't watch something with subtitles. And I'm like, that has a little bit of a xenophobic like sting to it, in my opinion. It's like, oh, okay, so because they're not speaking English, like you can't you can't figure it out. Like, I don't know. That's always bothered me. I've always found that to be kind of offensive. But anyway, I completely agree with the director of Parasite as well. Because yeah, I have found so much love for Korean dramas and for Kim's convenience. So 
yeah, I think that's that's all really valid. So thank you for bringing that up. It, it sounds like kind of what we're getting at is like even when Kim's convenience is having fun with a topic, it's coming from a place of authenticity and it's coming from a place of love, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Where as you like Brent, to your point, cyberpunk puts on different cultural ideas on like jaunty hats. I don't know. That's that's all I got to say. Yeah. I would wanna... Oh, go ahead, Brent. No, no, go. Well, I was just going to say, as far as the, the accent stuff goes too, I've been torn over the accents sometimes because I've sort of oscillated back and forth and I've seen some dialogue on that that's like, ooh, the accents are cringe or they're tough to work through. But I think, I, I forget whether I told you this, Brent. I think I mentioned it offhandedly when we first started watching that like, and I think I mentioned this with Amalia as well, the way that... Paul Sun Young Lee makes an effort to hold syllables at the end of sentences as an immigrant Korean father is this deeply resonant thing that I feel like most Korean American like second third generation folks are are pretty familiar with that that like the soundscape in that way helps set that authenticity that that we've all gotten at and that and that Forrest summarized very succinctly it's like an accent can get deployed not necessarily to say, haha, look at this accent, it's funny. It can get deployed to say, hey, this person's an immigrant and they're like, English isn't the best, but they still have things to say. It's just going to sound different. And it can do that in ways that are like a touchstone for, for people like me. And I actually, I remembered a point I wanted to make earlier. Thank you for bringing accents back up. Whenever someone makes fun of an immigrant, somebody who obviously was like, had the courage to come to another place and, you know, learn a new language. I, you know, anyone who has the nerve to make fun of, like, the the Korean accents in Kim's Convenience, I want to ask people, like, oh, how's your Korean? Like, honestly, because, you know, it's probably, like, could you do better? And, yeah, so I always okay. think of that when I, when I meet other people who, you know, experience that. Sorry, go ahead, Brent. Oh, you're good. I think, moreover, it's like, to the, to the point of like, oh, I worry about watching this because they have Korean accents and am I laughing at, you know, like Dane's point. I think it's like, he, here's the thing though, like he emigrated to this country in the story. Mm-hmm. Being unwilling to embrace and appreciate the humor, the character, because you're afraid of their differences is xenophobic in that you know it's this it's this idea that if you're not saying wow them them, them koreans sound funny but it's like oh no i don't want to i don't want to you know, i don't want to it's like this white it's this white woke like this white like weird i don't know white it's, guilt, it's, it's white white nighting yeah it's like it's the opposite you're still being you're still participating in discrimination you know but it's you've just flavored it more you know, more cotton candidly, like like with under the guise of not wanting to be discriminatory, you've you know you've discriminated, disallowed yourself a wonderful experience because you don't want to laugh at an accent. But they're not the, because the accent's not the joke. His accent right. is not the joke. The jokes that he makes in English are the same because guess what? He's speaking English. Mm-hmm. All all that's changed is how he sounds, which is such a nominal minor thing to get hung up on you know this 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 show is 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 all in english so maybe there's a little bit of korean here and there but the subtitle thing is this massive wall that i don't understand as someone who's like watched a lot of i'm half indian and i, I don't speak hindi i mean 
really my family ethnically is is Bengali. So I understand that language more easily. I still don't speak it. I've had to watch subtitles to participate in my own culture. You know, it's not it shouldn't be a a wall for for you if it's not a wall for me. And also like Japanese stuff, Korean stuff, like one of my favorite one of my favorite shows of all time is is this is this this K comedy called Let's Eat. The primary contrivance is that they almost every episode is is centered around a meal where they're just obsessed with food and there are these long drawn out shots of food perfectly entering their mouths and them just getting so fucking high over it it's such a great show and i would never have missed it if one of the if one of the things that i got hung up on was i mean i would have definitely missed it if if one of the things i got hung up on was subtitles but also it's something that i think i struggle with with this podcast in general is when we find things that we fucking like, I always worry that we're not going to have enough to talk about in that I can't find, like I am more readily here to make criticisms in generally speaking. (laughs) And when watching Kim's convenience, I have so few, (laughs) It, it, it is such a heartwarming experience. It's such a fun show. That I come on here and I and all I want to say is just fucking watch it. It's so good. Yeah. Dan, you had something? Yeah, there was one thing. I think it's the second season. It might be the ending, second half of season one. But there was an episode of the Trivia Night where their names, where Jung is at his sister's apartment. And they like really ham up that he's like dumb. And like at no point... In the show, did I feel like this was like not an intelligent character? It just came, it just felt like it was coming out of left field that they wanted to establish this about him. And I mean, that was my really my only weird part of the show so far was like, I never got this sense about him. Like, why, why, why are they doing this bit? I kind of got the sense early on, like, you know, they talk about him being a high school dropout and all of the issues that he had at home and stuff. So I think like maybe they did some kind of more implicit storytelling early on, but I I picked up on it a little bit. And, you know, I thought that maybe one of the broader points they were trying to make is like debunking that stereotype about like Asian people being smarter than other people, like the model minority stereotype. And so, yeah, I don't know. I picked up on it, but um, Matt, what do you think? I think, I think they try to construct Himbo Jong throughout the first couple seasons, but I think that the senior pointing to Dane is like one of the places where it really comes to a head. And I think that, one of the things that sticks out to me, like now reflecting on that moment and thinking back, is the idea that, like, there, I don't know whether this was intentional, but there's some stuff baked in there where you think about, like, okay, well, how do we come to understand someone as, as smart? Trivia nights are one of those places where this sort of shit gets decided so arbitrarily, right? But, like, I think that in some ways speaks to, yeah, sure, Jung's a himbo, but like, if any of y'all didn't finish high school, people would think you were a himbo because you wouldn't be winning a trivia night, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's, you know, it feels I, like there's some of that in there. I don't even necessarily think it was how they portrayed his intelligence or anything like that. Like that, that, that wasn't really. I think what I what was jarring to me was his almost embracing of it. Like he he didn't strike me as someone who was like proud of their of their ignorance like that and he just the way he just it just felt like I, he was hamming it up in that scene and maybe it's because he was trying to impress that girl that he later hooks up with and all that which is a fun thing but i don't know that one particular that one particular scene just stands out to me as like it just didn't feel like his character 
to just be like, yeah, I, I don't know anything about Hershey chocolate, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know. Just See, that's really my own. We're, we're, we're talking about criticisms and that was just my one I'm throwing out there. I think it's less a function of this show and more a function of shows in general. Like you can have a type of characterization for a character that is fairly generalized. Like, you know, Joey's stupid in Friends. Like that's the, the thing. He's, he's a himbo. And there are definitely scenes and episodes where he's like presenting a much more significant level of like emotional awareness than others where he just comes off as the biggest brick you've ever seen. I think it's it's all in service towards that bit, that moment. Right. You the I think the characterization is shifts a little bit to highlight the bit that they're trying to deliver in the moment. Because like I I mean I don't think even in that episode, I don't think that the him hamming it up is like a conf, like a confirmation of a lack of competence or anything or like an acceptance of that. I think it was just primarily in service to the his just general lack of trivia knowledge which is not i think a great marker for intelligence or in any in any way you know, what i think it was actually i really when i look back on that scene i think about jung's character as being really really confident right he's like this super confident hot guy and you know I think it's one of those moments where he has to face insecurity for the first time in a way that's very direct. And sometimes you don't know what you're insecure about until you're face to face with it. Right. So it was a lack of self-awareness and it was overconfidence. I don't think he was hamming up or proud of being dumb. I think he didn't realize he was being dumb. And then when he realized people were laughing at him, that's when he decided to go back to school and get his GED, you know? Yeah. So that's my interpretation. Yeah, and to that point, I think that's a wonderful point. I think it's also like in situations like that, when you are starting to feel targeted, one of the things that is a response is accept like a perceived acceptance of the target weakness so that it diminishes the damage being dealt. You know, like if yeah. somebody starts mm-hmm. to clown me for being like being bald, for example, mm. I might I might like double down on the fact that I'm bald just to show Maybe even if maybe inwardly I'm I'm feeling it, but just to show the the people who are doing it, like oh, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, you know. And I, that that might have been it. I think my biggest gripe with the show, I'm wary of coming out here hot, blazing, hot take, you know, guns cocked, all of this stuff. I think my biggest problem with the show, and it's a serious problem, might take some max points away is that Matt had the audacity to fucking introduce it and leave before we could finish it where ah. we were at. You son of a bitch. How <laughs> dare you do me dirty like that? You motherfucker. <laughs> Listen, bud, I, I, you know, if something about leading horses to water, only you're not a horse, you're the whole last person and I'm, I'm sorry i left to go invest in myself damn it <laughs> <laughs> I, I, email, I emailed the showrunners in fact i'm the reason i'm the reason kim's convenience is ending i said oh, I, Brent, what did you do i said you need to end this show so matt has nothing take or take <laughs> i'm gonna tear him down joy point joy point by joy point next thing i'm gonna do is i'm gonna find i'm gonna find the persona 5 developers I'm going to have them make shooters from now on. <laughs> send send all your feedback to Brent at BrentSucks.com. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was me all along, and I started cackling. <laughs> See, Brent, I thought that was going to get real cute, and you were going to be like, my only gripe is that it's ending, which I think actually maybe like the main gripe that most of us have here actually is that it's ending so what's the deal it's continuing for this last season that's airing right now apparently and and then it's and then it's done yeah yeah season five and that's it i don't know if i have i don't really have i would say gripes with the way that the show like was written or acted or performed you know the the only the only thoughts i have that might be like hmm maybe this isn't doing like universal good so to speak is more related to like sitcom as platform i guess like the sort of cultural protocols of putting a sitcom together as also having this history of taking minority families and stereotypes and like putting them in a in a tv museum so to speak for for white people to access safely but that's like kind of a in my mind that's kind of like a broader question that doesn't have as much to do with the show so i want i don't want to like belabor us beyond like just indicating that i feel like that's out there somewhere (laughs) but i do think that maybe if folks are interested in talking through it looking at like building off our jung discussion right I think Jung has a really interesting sort of character arc, and I think that his relationship with Mr. Kim is, for me, really one of the big drivers for that show. And I don't know how much of that is going to come down to my personal family history as the child of divorces and, and what have you, playing into that, like, how hard father-son relationships can get sometimes. But, like, I, I felt like that, for me, was really one of the driving forces. I think I cried more over Mr. Kim and Jung than, like, anybody else in that show, right? Like, <laughs> but I don't know. I'm curious about about thoughts from folks on on, like, some of those arcs really i i mean even with janet any any connection between mr kim and his kids i yeah, i tear up frequently watching this show yeah. he is an incredible actor which is why it's so weird when i real when i when i first saw him i was like wait isn't that the guy who was in the x-wing in the mandalorian i'm like what but he yeah, yeah uh, everyone he, else uh, watches mandalorian and is like is that mr kim in an x-wing <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> see, it would be great if he got back and it's like, okay, see you. <laughs> yeah, right. off. I I know. Oh my god. Or or we you know when he when he when they finish shooting the spiders and Mandalorian goes to talk. Stop. <laughs> I think from I think for me, uh, like the parental relationship stuff, I I have a very skewed perception of that. You know, Matt knows. I'm sure the rest of you to some extent. I, it it does hurt. It does definitely hurt my feelings in like a nice way to see to see parents trying, like being flawed and still trying. So I got. I think I get emotional, but I also think that I have like a little bit of a. I'm a. I'm a fucking crier, right? If there's a if there's a good dad scene or there's a, I, I, I immediately oh fuck I'm crying because I don't know what that's like. So I think the show I'm at a disadvantage in that scenario where it doesn't really matter how nuanced the representation is and how it relates to you know the immigrant experience and or anything like that. I just I just see a good dad and I'm like no 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 it's okay just get it together get it together. Remember your Lamaze class? I don't know what that that I think it's related to pregnancies. Forrest, what do you think? Before say, come save me, Forrest. Come save me. Come in. Well, I was just thinking about all the relationships, like the like Jung and Kimchi, or like at work, Janet and Appa. I I, I mean, there's no relationship in this series that feels like it wasn't thought through. Mm-hmm. Like every relationship seems 
somewhat authentic and of course like it's a sitcom so it's like brought to the nth degree to some extent like characters are sometimes like overly mean or something but that's just like to drive the plot forward and other like if you remove kind of the sitcom lens it all seems what i appreciate about this show and the relationships is that they all seem real except for maybe jung and shannon but that's okay (laughs) and also hey man i was wondering what what is your take on the i think it's the cousin maybe Nayong. Nayong, oh man. What is the show trying to say about that character, do you think? Nayong is wild, right? Like, Nayong became Amalia and my most hated character, not for any reason within the show, but because whenever you highlight Kim's convenience on console and you're like scrolling through Netflix, you just hear, so good, see you on me. And I'm like, ah. And like, so that's like, we're like two octaves higher than right. that. It's very yeah. high. <laughs> yeah, I, my voice I, doesn't go high enough. <laughs> I will say, uh, I just finished the episode where she hooked up with kimchi, and she's like, how I explain? <laughs> kimchi, this friend, Toronto friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, so I mean, I don't... <sighs> to help you refocus, what, does the, what do you think the show is saying about that character? Ha. Huh. Like, what am I meant to... Like, maybe what, what, less what I'm meant to feel. Maybe, maybe what i meant to feel but like as a you know if you're watching it as a, a korean you know korean american korean person of korean descent whatever what is the what do you think what do you think the what do you think the vibe is what do you think the message is right i'm like my my hamster wheel is like frantically spinning over this one but i guess if you want me and forrest can vamp about bullshit where you take your time on this so, i think amalia had something to say i actually yeah, yeah i actually really did so there are we were talking about relationships and how ultimately this is a super character driven drama you know whenever or not drama but a series so i think that people anywhere are more likely to be captivated by people or character driven dramas than you know more circumstantial or more about world building and i have an english degree i have a psychology degree so when i watch anything it's like it's a gift and a curse because i'm extremely picky and matt can attest to this i have like i am the most harsh critic <laughs> of everything she's and she's high key savage i am i'm high key savage about some things that like you know, other people would have no problem with at all. But one of the things I loved about this show is that it was an exploration of different types of love as well. You know, you have, of course, all of the romantic love experiences with like Shannon and Dong and Mr. and Mrs. Kim as they're getting older. So like an exploration of love after many, many years and after having children, Mr. and Mrs. Meta, you know, them going through their problems and uh, Mrs. Mitta casually making jokes about getting a cardboard cut out of him or like, <laughs> you know, I had servants in India <laughs> and stuff like that. And of course, more like brotherly love too, like between Jung and Kinchi or, you know, friendship, like between other characters, like especially Jung and Kinchi. But I guess what I'm getting at is that I think more so than the Korean lens or the immigrant experience lens. This show is also ultimately about relationships and it's about what all the different types of love that there are 
and being open-minded or closed-minded. And I think Nyong, just to bring us back to where, where Matt's, uh, Matt's hamster wheel is spinning, <laughs> I think Nyong might be an exploration of, you know, there are stereotypes about every group of people, I think, but the, the stereotypes about Asian people sometimes are like, you know, like cool Christian Korean boy, right? That's the phrase that comes to mind is Oma in the beginning of that episode when Nayeon comes to the States. She's like, she's like trying desperately to find like more modest clothes for Nayeon to wear. And Janet's like, whoa, mom, like, you know, she, she can wear whatever she wants, you know, like just because she's dressed that way doesn't mean that she's a slut, etc. And then she shows up and she's like, Janet is actually shocked by, you know, how much Nyong has changed since they were kids. So I think that Nyong in some ways is a in part acts as a plot device to demonstrate the counterculture and what people don't immediately associate with Korean culture or with stereotypes about Koreanness. So that's that's my take, but yeah, thought I'd share. Are the met are the metas which is fucked because this is an Indian name. I'm pretty sure I said it the whitest way possible. Uh, <laughs> are they are they in the sec first or second season? I yes. thought they were. They are. I yeah. Because that should bit, keep watching just for the metas. Honestly, <laughs> some of their interactions are amazing. That bit about having servants in in the in India. That's something that I always I think is interesting is about a gen like when you start to look I don't know who the showrunners are if they're for first or second generation or, or or what but something that I I've always found interesting is this like kind of general awareness of other immigrant cultures because that is that is a right. fucking thing that Indian people who are immig- who, who emigrated to this country bring up often like hearing that triggers in me the type of like like my Indian upbringing you know dealing with with aunties and uncles just like fucking immediately like i remember half those motherfuckers being like i i had servants back in like just to borrow another culture i had servants back in the old country and it was like it's just a it's a funny and not that they're like being negative or anything but it's just a funny bit and also kind of i think it touches briefly on if not intentionally like this like one of my uncles was a doctor in india and couldn't be a doctor in this country this weird like level of sacrifice from your worked, you know, your earned identity in, in one country and how it's diminished in another, you know, because of like weird bureaucracy and stuff like that. That's that's an interesting thing. Matt, did you have something from your hamster wheels or? Uh, yeah, the hamster wheels have spun so much because y'all are creating quality content here and I appreciate it. Um, I, <laughs> I guess on the sort of Nayong point, I think that especially coming out of this sort of overarching love motif, right? Nayong is in so many ways, I think, also a nod to how weird being a transnational family can be. And like having this cousin who you who you want to connect with and who you were cool with as little kids and like oops, turns out Nayong, right, while you were here in Canada, was still growing up on the peninsula, and it's just like a very different sort of cultural environment. And so that, I think, presents sort of a a test of older familial love on that level. I think there's also sort of the more like blunt instrument kind of this character is more than the cat ears she's wearing kind of stuff that goes on, right? Because like really Nayong is this kind of normal, sexually liberated college kid just having Mm -hmm. a time, right? And that's just sort of thing and i think that 
sort of question as well of what is it like to be over here and still have parts of you that were over there or memories that were over there because building off the sort of the the servant's point as well right there's to some degree a question of love for your kids in moving to a different country right for opportunities i, I think my grandfather was a like a cement executive when he decided to move here and he came here and he's like working three part-time jobs, right? Like that, that was kind of narrative. I was, I was, yeah. Uh, I mean, similar, similar, similarly, my, my grandfather is, was a professor in India and my grandmother was a head, a headmaster at a prestigious private school. And, you know, they came here following my father to help take care of me. And, you know, my grandfather is a, very educated man, like in political science, you know, had a master in his, was a master in his craft wow. and came here growing up. I watched him work at gas stations, you know, to fit like that stereotype. And my grandfather, when he came here, wasn't young. So he would walk, right? He never learned to get a license here. So he walked, he would use the Metro, which is like, you know, like a public transportation system here in Houston so terrible for it that it's more convenient in Houston to get a metro system that involves minivans coming to your house than it is you walking to a bus station. So that's like, so like a lot that's of my... The most, that's the most so Texas true. thing I've ever heard. Oh exactly. my God. It's yeah. so true. And like, so like me, it'd be me going, getting on a, getting on a mini, getting in a minivan with my grandfather to go to a fiesta. And my, my grandfather's a very proud man. So I never really witnessed that lion exterior break until much different personal tribulations hit us. It never seemed like he was bitter about being working at gas stations or my grandmother never seemed bitter about being just essentially like a like a watcher at a Montessori school instead of a teacher. Mm. They never really seemed super bitter by it. But they're also it's that's also part of the cultural thing at least for 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 us for me was that those types of emotions that type of like admission of frustration is not common right it is not yeah. particularly smiled upon and it's it was a marker of shame to be upset about that you know like the uncle of mine that was a doctor and not a doctor here complained about it often but he was also an alcoholic and also like the, a point of frustration for the entire family, which is not maybe not fair to his experience. Well, so that's you know, interesting. It's, yeah, it's interesting that um, you're bringing up this concept of bitterness and sacrifice as well. This motif comes up many times. I think about the episode. I can't remember what season it's in, but the episode where Mr. Kim starts selling Janet's photographs that she needs for school. It's like her schoolwork and she gets angry with him. And the whole show, he's like trying to sell these photographs that he took. And people don't like them. And Mr. Chin, one of the lovely side characters who just appears periodically, who's also an immigrant from China, he walks in and he hears about the situation and he says, you're jealous of the opportunities that Janet got because she takes better pictures than you could. You know, like from the education that you were able to provide for her, you have developed some bitterness from the sacrifices you made. And with regards to the career thing as well, like when you think about the episode where Mr. Kim talks about how he used to be a teacher 
when he was in Korea. That was something that came up. And there there was like the stereotype where like someone mistakes him for the store owner in air quotes because I just realized people can't see me. They mistake Mr. Kim for the store owner. And Mrs. Kim is like, but you are the convenience store owner. Like, why are you upset? And he was like, I was a teacher in Korea, you know, like, and that that comes up as like, there's this kind of question of how much your identity changes when you move to another place. And then also that little bit of like, bitterness and that stinging feeling that you are jealous of the opportunities that your kids have kind of subconsciously and it comes out a bit later um sorry sorry to spoil this for you dana i know you haven't gotten to this part but pastor nina uh makes mr and mrs kim go to like a couple's therapy session at one point and mr kim is like this is stupid and he goes on and on and then he says like he just like blurts out that his dad never hugged him and like stopped mid-sentence and was like nearly crying and you know it's one of those moments where you're like, oh my god, what? Because <laughs> this whole time, like, this whole show is, like, wholesome and funny and cute, but there are moments of profound sadness that are brought on by the tr- truthful aspects of someone's experience and things that situationally, if you, like, think about it and put yourself in that position yourself, you're like, oh, I could see why someone would feel that way, you know? And... Yeah, there's, it's, yeah, it's not all happiness and all wholesomeness. I just, I wanted to get to the point where it's like, there are a lot of serious topics covered in this show, and there's a lot of, like, deeply sad moments as well. It's really, really multidimensional, which makes it even better, so. I guess this is a little bit of a tangent, but I'm trying to, I'm starting to feel a, a, a weird random bout of bitterness towards Western society. Do, do you think, and I don't know this for a fact, do you think that a master's degree here would get not recognized in other countries like i wonder what the experience is like to be american probably white and immigrating to another country if there's that cert if there's that same level of like reduction in quality of of life or like or like a a disregarding of your individual experiences and credentials and i don't know like i don't want to i don't want to say that that's the case inherently or for sure but to me the idea that the, my perception of an American, regardless of race, going to a different country and accepting that they're going, like they're a bachelor's program here, they're a headmaster at a school, and that they would go to another country and work at a convenience store for the rest of their lives seems super foreign to me that anyone here would accept that. And it, I, think, I think it makes me, it makes me I'm, I'm getting a little heated thinking about the sacrifices that, are, that my grandparents were willing to make. And that many of like that, you know, I imagine, Matt, a lot of your family had to make. And you know what? Even in going back far enough, a lot of the rest of the, the cast families had to make coming yeah, my, here. Mm-hmm. My mom's side of the family is German. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like coming here and, you know, granted, there's like there's a level of integration that is not possible several generations down for. But I don't want to diminish the fact that immigrants coming here are expected to take a hit. Like you can't be what you were anywhere else in the country when you come here, like to some level. Well, I, I think on some level, if we're talking about like degrees and sort of credentialing, right, this, this does get back to sort of the way that Western academia is a colonizing endeavor or an imperializing endeavor. Where if you go and like you look at like 
right? We literally have campuses for schools. Like Northwestern has a campus in Qatar, right? Like, or NYU has a campus in China or something like that, right? Like we literally have branches of our schools in other places. And if you look at like, one of the big things that I'm getting in terms of advice now is don't just look at the U.S. for job opportunities when you're done your PhD, which makes me literally the imperializer, right? Like, I'm going to go somewhere else where my degree is validated already because it's a U.S. PhD, and that's got some degree of, like, mystique that isn't equal everywhere else or isn't equated in other places if they came here. Or if you were to um, hand off between, like, us and the U.K., I feel like there's a lot more cross-pollinating that's like greenlit between these, like the like our fucking our grandparents in the UK, like or or you know, I don't know. Forrest, you have something to say, but before you do that, Forrest, I just want to know real quick, what are you drinking? Oh, what am I drinking? A DC Brow Joint Resolution. I've been wondering the same nice thing beer. the whole time, but I didn't want to ask. It's you, a nice beer. You can get it at the corner store because its, they its, brew it in DC. What's its APV? I don't know, like six, five and a half. Nice. Yeah, nice. it's right. not too bad. Yeah, now please continue with your point. Well, I was going to say it's funny that you mentioned the UK because when I'm looking online, and obviously I don't know shit about anything, but I'm just like Googling around to see what I can find. If you look for degree equivalency from the United States, it almost always auto-completes into the UK. And like Google just wants you to search for equivalency in the UK as if the US, the UK, and Canada shows up too. As if those three countries are the countries where you can get a degree that matters. And like everywhere else is like, why would you search for that? That's just that's just what I get from a cursory glance, oh. glance from the internet. You know, what's interesting, I actually used to work as an immigration paralegal. It was my first job out of college. And I think one of the things that I was responsible for, just to provide some context, was uh, education evaluations. We called them edival. And what basically what we were doing was trying to figure out what, you know, a degree type that we didn't recognize in the States and we'd never heard of, like, you know, just the name, you know, they didn't call it a master's or bachelor's. They're like, okay, what is this? So there is an entire business that we actually would send these degrees off to, to have these evaluations done. So first of all, that is an entire industry in the United States that a lot of people probably don't know or think about. And secondly, I just wanted to offer like a, a minor counterpoint to some of the immigrant experience, you know, coming to the U.S. You know, there in my experience as an immigration paralegal, I saw I worked on H-1B visas, which are work visas for skilled workers. So one hand, yes, of course, you have people taking these massive risks and coming to the United States and, you know, having to work at convenience stores and, you know, not work for the type of industry that they applied for. But on the other hand, you have the H-1B visa type in the U.S. and you have, it's a, uh, unfortunately, it is a lottery system. <laughs> so there is only a certain likelihood that you will be selected for it. And that always broke my heart when we would, you know, go through all this effort to build a case for someone and then they weren't chosen. But anyway, my point is, I guess, that you know, there is actually a massive demand for skilled labor from other places, particularly in the security and IT industries, technologies, artificial intelligence. I could go on and on. I think that to an extent there is, there's not a lot of awareness of that, I guess. Like I always was surprised by, you know, after I left that job, I was surprised by the way people would talk about it because they didn't seem to know that this 
massive demand for immigrant labor existed in like high paying, like really prestigious jobs as well. So, yeah. Sorry, that was a lot. <laughs> I guess I think about it, though, as like the H-1B program. I'm sure there's a valid, a very valid reason. It's just, Cap- but it's like, go ahead. Cap- capitalism. Yeah. It's, but it, you know, like it probably represents, and this is me fully, 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 fully talking out of my ass. But I would imagine it represents not the majority of immigration to the country, legal immigration to the country. So it's like, I, if I were to guess, if I were to hazard a guess, I think that the average number is probably close to a million, maybe a million and a half. And uh, what number? Uh, uh, just total, total legal, total legal immigration. Mm. And but I have no idea what the H one what the H one B. Which, by the way, I, every time I hear H one B, I immediately think of H one N one. It's not uh, swine flu. <laughs> it's not swine flu. It, it. I think that percentage is probably capped hard and not a, and not a not not maybe a significant percentage, but not the majority, right? And I I don't know. I don't know. I don't guess. I don't see the purpose of the limit. You know, if we're talking about the is if, and maybe if I were to hazard a guess based off of Dane's point that likely it's meant to protect domestic skilled labor by limiting the amount of potentially cheaper labor that can get brought in of similar quality and skill well i think it's i think it's just the opposite i think it's to keep i think it's artificially keeping the value of foreign labor low by putting these barriers in place but wouldn't Um, they if they wouldn't flooding the market with more skilled labor diminish the cost in, in in terms of in terms of capitalism the supply versus demand if the company in question is sponsoring their visa then that is an additional cost you would have to keep in mind from a business's perspective right like you it's not cheap it's no. very it's very very expensive and that's true for all immigrants who uh, you know come over legally and everything and anyway i guess what i'm saying is that like that is one of the costs that businesses have to keep in mind when they are hiring someone on an h1b visa in particular is there and the question always comes up like is there a green card opportunity at the end of this and that's often a very hazy question because the employer doesn't know they haven't figured that out or made that determination at that point but there's so much i'm not allowed to say and it's killing me because i signed an nda <laughs> yeah i just i but, think uh, i think if it's a if it's a finite fixed amount i can only imagine mm-hmm. that that's meant to make it less ideal for a business to hire out outside of america huh yeah i i could see that especially for smaller businesses you know like the the place where i worked which i will not say i i will keep them anonymous but it was a very large company international and they they could afford h1b visa labor and not not all places obviously can in the u.s but because I know for we had an H-1B employee who mm-hmm. didn't finish their, didn't complete their sponsorship agreement, but made a deal with with our company to switch companies and whatever. But yeah. they were paid six figures. I think part of the requirement for H-1B is that they're set, like to the why. Also, why I think it's 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 intention is to protect domestic labor is that the H-1B when he came over. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to limit him as a number. He wasn't a great guy, but he, that's that's not a function of him being an immigrant. And that's nothing that's being, unrelated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So this per- <laughs> when this person came through, their salary had to be posted, and any time they renewed or got upped, we were had to, it would had to be posted in a public place. So I think the 
so from just off of that, knowing that we were paying for the the visa and like for the sponsorship in general and seeing that his salary was posted and that it was significant, I think all of that keys into an attempt to prevent foreign labor from flooding the market and job out job like out jobbing American citizens, which is, you know, neither here. I don't really want to I don't I don't know the the merits or the demerits of it. Yeah. I, I all I know from my experience is that the majority of my family did not come on an H-1B and had to take a position that was available. And right. that was very rarely an equivalency to their skill set or their experience. Yeah. You know, like my I think my my the, the generation right before me, like my father and his sister were lucky that they came here young and with the intention of getting an American degree. So they both have masters here in this in this country and were able to kind of work off of that jumping point. But the same was not applied to my grandmother's generation, who most of them made it here. Like most of them that did not die young, of which she was 15 siblings, then most of them made it to the country. And most of them were working like one of my a family member of mine, like that was in kind of in a half step between my father and my my grandmother's generation very intelligent person, worked at a jack-in-the-box forever. And there's no diminishment in that labor. That's work, right? That's yeah. we've, we've, we've shown what, what COVID, how COVID highlights what's necessary and how we don't really support or this, this ascent, like these, oh, these are nece- like necessary jobs, but then you don't pay them like they're necessary. Yeah, I right. see that. So there's no diminishment in the work, but it is, it is the, the work is diminished by capitalism. So this person like was never able to, in any significant way, take hold of the American dream outside of being with their family and potentially, right, giving their children a chance to participate in the in the society that we have that is, I think, that has sold like a, a, a false bill of goods to the rest of the world. But I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I want to get too hung up on. Yeah. On, on, I could go, I could talk about this all day. I did I, like HR and labor stuff and labor law, immigration. Like I can go on and on about the. I can get into the weeds like in an embarrassing mm. way. Yeah, <laughs> it's like so boring. No one cares. <laughs> I'm boring all your listeners. <laughs> and yeah, so and it's funny because we're talking about America. We're not even talking about Canada, which is the place where kim's convenience takes place it's not in the united states at all true so, so i have, you have yeah. no perception of what the the canadian immigrant experience and how I, it differs me neither yeah but yes comrade dane you were saying oh, i was just gonna say we're a third world country with a first class uh, pr that's all oh, okay actually <coughs> on the topic of canada their medium wage is now higher than america's and they actually have way more upwards uh, class mobility than america has so the American dream is now the Canadian dream, as it turns out. Yeah, Canada slaps. It's really cool. I loved yeah. it when I was visiting. I've been I've been dreaming Canadian dreams like since halfway through my first year. Maybe is that like is that like do is that like do <laughs> do machines drink, dream of electric sheep? It's oh yeah. nice nice I got that reference. Flamo <laughs> Neil Young in the background. <laughs> Sci-fi. Um, nice. <laughs> I think that like. On some level, if we want to just to rein us in and reconcile our, our labor law conversations with with Kim's, though, right? Like, I should be an Olympic gymnast for this stretch. But I, I do think legitimately, though, that this this speaks to some of the ways that that Kim's convenience feels ubiquitous, or 
or not ubiquitous, but like universal on -hmm. some level for at least for a like Western kind of uh, lower middle class, middle class kind of demographic of, of watchers, because on the one hand, it speaks to like that sort of like American central kind of thought that comes with living here and being inundated with a lot of exceptionalism. But also I think that the narrative that occurs and the narratives that occur in Kim's convenience feel they can apply to a lot of countries with heavy immigrant influxes, or at least that market themselves thusly. Um, So like, even though we're not Canadian and we're not in Canada, you know, my grandparents aren't Canadian immigrants. We still feel that narrative in a U.S. context in a way, because it's, it's like, familiar enough it doesn't have to be totally familiar but if it it hits a certain threshold it's like oh yeah that could happen here right and and you know that convenience store could be in no probably not la it's too expensive probably not new york it's too expensive but like maybe bel-air in houston right like you know or or like like west raleigh or or what have you so i i think that even looking at some of those like bitter feelings that maybe some of the characters feel and the sort of imposition of pressure that happens with with the children of immigrants i would say as sort of collateral damage of migration and sometimes not having the opportunity to work a job within your previous context were qualified for i think we see a lot of that right like we see so many of the cracks in that and like that weird like how do you how how must it it feel to have been a teacher and been a nominally successful teacher and whose wife was a nurse and to have dropped everything and moved to another country and your kid wants to take pictures of things, right? Like really playing to a market that is sometimes seen, right? Like sometimes the arts get seen as like a luxury, right? Um, There's Mm -hmm. sort of a, at the very least, a luxury branding associated with that, right? Which makes it seem, uh, oh no, here comes Dane with the capitalism hammer. Not Dane before God damn it, Dane. God damn it, Dane. Yeah, I think we see, I think that's a very turbulent place to be. And mm-hmm. I think Forrest is indicating he has, he has something to add to the subject here. So Yes, I'm indicating. <laughs> I was just going to say, I correct me if you're going in a different direction with this, but it what you're saying makes me think of you bringing up that this show being in the mold of the American sitcom kind of like does service, but also does a disservice. But I think in some sense it does, it allows the show to have these serious conversations by like wrapping it up into this sort of sitcom package. Mm -hmm. And it also helps the show sort of escape. I don't want to say trap, but like the, the, the potential to be a show that's like, let's show all of the white Americans or Canadians like a story of an immigrant family that came over and made it and like we can all feel happy about ourselves because we created a system where that's possible it's more like okay well you know here's what here's a bunch of flaws and like we're gonna they're funny situations and like things kind of work but things also kind of like don't work in some cases and like just here's how it is is there anything to that or am I kind of going on a different tangent I think Kim's convenience definitely handles the, what you're what you're describing, and I'm just I'm just, all I'm doing is stepping in because I can see Matt thinking. I think it I think it handles it so deftly, like it 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 is truly impre- it is so impressive because I think shows that, and not from like a 
it's a like a Korean show perspective, but there are just too many shows that are trying to say so many different things from so many different perspectives and end up saying nothing or end up saying something that is the opposite of what they intended or says it poorly. And I think Kim's Convenience does exactly what it intends on doing, mm-hmm. which you cannot diminish in terms of competency and quality. But I guess outside of that, Matt, if you wanted to, to respond, if not, I'm, I'm more than happy to say Kim's Convenience is probably one of the best shows I've ever seen. It's easily the best show that Dane's ever seen. Dane watches just garbage all the time, <laughs> all the time. I took a sneak peek at his algorithm. I emailed my buddies at Netflix and they showed me his algorithm. You can't imagine how many shows about glass blowing and knife making that Dane watches. I, I, and I, don't, I, don't, I just simply don't know. I don't understand why. I don't get it. I would say, you know, at the end of the season, maybe we should have a bracket where we just rank all of the things we talked about. I think Kim's Convenience might might make it to the you top. You and your brackets, man. You would just have it on for brackets. I can't imagine. I can't tell you how confused I was by that music bracket thing still to this day. I don't understand how anybody yeah. makes points. Do uh, Anyway, we'll talk about that offline. Yeah, that's the whole other thing. That's been our episode on this. I don't know. We didn't, we didn't have like a funny bit at the end, but you could reach us at popculturecake at gmail.com. Unless anybody wanted to give any socials, Dane? Nope. Matt? I am, as always, a, a minimum wage laborer to my to my academic Twitter account, at Nim E-H-Y-U-N-G-N-I-M, where you can find me. It's an awful Korean pun. I'll explain it one day, but not today. Forrest? Uh, don't, don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Amalia? I don't have any socials to shout out, but I just want to say to all 90 of the individual viewers, Kumal, and okay, see you. Thank you for having me. They refused yeah. to apologize. I mean, they did. They did for terrible things. But, you know, Matt, since you have such strong opinions, let's start with you. You know, as the person who introduced me to the po- to the show, you know, what are your thoughts on it ending and what are your thoughts on the show kind of just from a, a more general perspective? I adore Max's, but I also adore Judging Myun and it's deeply troubling. Um Whoa, trying to choose That was a very people. long very long pause there. Yeah, we had a very oh, we had a very, we moved yeah, we had, on like minutes ago. Yeah. We had a we had a very long pause and then you were talking I think I think what happened was you were talking about the, the question that I asked you and then it just wasn't picking anything up. So let's 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 do that again, Adam, if you're if you're listening. Big tech hates me. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Sorry. <laughs> oh hail Adam. Oh, I'm so sorry, God. Adam. Bye uh, you some judgment. <laughs>